0: Hi, everyone. This is part two to the interview with Jackie about Poder. If you have not seen part one, I do recommend you check it out. Without further ado, let's get started. I was wondering if you could tell me more about the challenges you see amongst the immigrant community and maybe with language tied into that.
1: Yeah, Um. maybe I'll kind of narrow down on some examples. Um. I think additionally, my my role at PODER, maybe I'm not the best person to, to have, like, a super close connection to this. Um, my work at PODER is, is the youth program organizer, right? Most of the youth that I work with are first or second generation, um, but a lot of them are comfortable in English. Um, in years past, I know the program has had more of a focus on, like, Spanish-speaking youth recently arrived um, in the way that, like, kind of we, the youth that have been coming through, most of them are interested, are not interested, are are comfortable in English. So I think that almost in a way removes me a little bit from really experiencing some of the, like, challenges that some of my other coworkers um, have to navigate in city systems and institutions to support. Um, community members and our membership. So I think for me, one of the most clear examples, um, I would say is kind of navigating the, the uh, housing applications for affordable housing. So um, where do I begin? (laughs) Um, And I know down the line, there was also a reference to LAN SF, uh, Language Access Network, and the San Francisco Immigrant Legal and Education Network, SF Island, uh, which plays ties to this, right? In San Francisco, there is an ordinance that states that all city um, institutions um, have to provide multilingual services, right? Whether that's through a phone call, whether that is through in person, And that ordinance is important and it's great, but we don't always see it in practice, right? And I think when I think of like housing and applications, uh, a lot of this has now moved to like being um, uh, processed online, which already can be a barrier for a lot of folks. Um, And while things are offered in multi-languages, a lot of the... um, a lot of the language um, doesn't translate. I'm sorry, it's my dog. Doesn't translate. Um, yeah. I think what I'm really trying to get at is a lot of information that's out there for applications or even like things like voting and like ballots, language Like, I can read English, but does that necessarily mean that I'm understanding the implications, the context of of, of what's being shared? And sometimes the answer is no. Right. So these processes sometimes can be highly academic or theoretical or just, you know, words don't translate in this culturally in the same way. And I think that leaves people out of different processes. Um, And that's really significant. Right. So for ballads, for example. Um political systems or kind of structures aren't identical from place to place. So uh, as someone who, you know, is ESL or is monolingual in whatever language and they're reading a translated version of what this bill or, or candidate, like what their platform is, Um, it may not be translating culturally in the same way. And I think that's one thing that's very significant, right? Even for me, like college educated, you know, I get my ballot and I'm like, wait, what? Like, what, what, what? Read it again. And really like the reason I feel confident uh, as an active voter is because organizations like SFR, San Francisco Rising, that break down kind of that, that language, right? So the way that we connect to language language or are represented by language sometimes is uh, different <laughs> in through culture and through language right like language really is shaped by our environment by our environment and our environment is shaped by the language that we give it so when it comes to kind of power and status I think that um, that feeds into that right like who has access to understand this like very complicated text and I think that that plays a role so you know for things like housing applications that leaves a lot of people out let alone like it's a lottery system so you know a lot of folks are not aren't guaranteed to be housed through this lottery system and kind of that's the way that we leave it at right like well that's how it is that's how it is and it shouldn't be in that way um so i think those are some of the like immediate challenges i see um one of our one of our members as well i think um when she she is an interpreter in her Mayan language and she actually um because she's fluent in Spanish and um, her indigenous language she is a court interpreter so this is something else that the city has to provide like proper interpretation for court procedures um which also doesn't happen in the way that it should. And I've experienced this at city commission hearings, public hearings, where they'll, you know, offer an interpreter that is like minimally fluent and, you know, doesn't take the same, you know, and I'm not saying they have to say it in the same tone or they have to say it, you know, with the same energy. But, you know, when, when that kind of cultural connection isn't made, there's a lot that's missed in an interpretation. Um, And then that, you know, if you're legally represented by something like that, that actually does have implications because there could be a lot that's left out.
0: Yeah, I think like what you're saying about um, representation in court, I think that is actually really important um, that it's kind of presented in a similar uh, manner just because that is a really important thing that there's a lot left out Um, a lot of gaps between languages that might not be seen Um, and I know you talked a lot about language inequality um, and kind of language barriers and I was wondering if Podair does any work um, around language barriers and if its philosophy is more towards um, helping people advocate their native languages or to advance their English English fluency um, or kind of a combination of the two.
1: In the thirty years of Boulder, I think this is not something that we have like heavily focused on in the last five years, given that you know our work around housing has been um, really prioritized because of you know mass evictions and displacement. Um, But I would say that in years past, um, it has, and maybe this is like a space where I can connect you with um, my colleagues either Laura or Amy who kind of work within the um, LAN SF and SF Island networks uh, deeply. Um, So, yeah, I think maybe this one we can, we can skip. Um, But maybe what would connect to this, to answer this is that our work, uh, our meetings, our workshops, um, everything is usually bilingual. If it's intergenerational, meaning we have our youth members and our like, members that have been around for 30, 40 years, I won't say 40, like 30, 20 years, um, our intention is always to plan it bilingually, whether that's through breakout groups or whether that's side-by-side interpretation. Um, So our members know that whatever they're gonna be getting themselves into, whether it's like a celebration or a planning meeting or a hearing, that we're going to support in that in that way to make sure that everybody is not just like, like getting the information, but their thoughts are included in the planning process or in the agenda, in the in whatever it is that we're doing. Really significant. Yeah, so that, there isn't kind of yeah, yeah. a need to ask for interpretation. Like that is an assumption. That is something that we will be providing. Yeah. Often what ends up happening is that the majority is Spanish speaking. And the interpretation that actually needs to happen is in English. And I think that is kind of a a nice way to, like, create that um, inclusivity of, like, you know, dismantling that English has to be this, like, language of success or is, like, the main language. But um, when English is the language that needs to be interpreted, um, it's interesting. And it, it puts folks who are kind of in that monolingual, English monolingual, um, space to challenge themselves as well. And we have youth members who are maybe more comfortable in English, but want to challenge themselves to really, like, relearn Spanish or, or, or take part in kind of these political processes in Spanish. And they'll challenge themselves to do that. And I think that's also really powerful because that space is offered for, you know, that that bilingual uh, dialogue.
0: And, um, okay, so how do you feel about the ability to speak English, um, and how it factors into those communities, um, who are perceived and treated maybe differently? And do you feel that San Francisco is better than most cities in this regard? And kind of what do you feel the most effective ways to address these hurdles with language?
1: I think I've shared a little bit in terms of how, you know, in academia meaning starting in elementary school, middle school, high school, um, college, you know. um, English is really viewed as like the main language and the language in which we have to be successful in. Um, For me personally, um, I had the privilege of going to a bilingual public elementary school. And, you know, this is like with, everything in my house happened in Spanish and everything at school happened in English and Spanish. So I was learning English as I was learning, like, you know, proper Spanish grammar, if that makes sense, like parts of a sentence, everything that you learn in elementary school, we're doing like twice that work. So for me, that really established that like foundation of language kind of being core in how we connect to ourselves and connect to our community. and while, you know, I will say Spanish is a colonizer language in Latin America, it is a language that folks are speaking right now, right? So I, I do feel uh, proud of being able to speak Spanish and that I've been able to, like, retain that um, to connect with elders as well. Um, so I think that that is really important. Um, but this question wasn't about me. The, the reason I say that is because uh, the way that it connects to education, I think, is really important. Um, how does this factor into how communities are perceived and treated? Um, great. Let me let me share about elementary school. I think one uh, I had this uh, Spanish bilingual class, and think I have some of my like most like eye opening moments in terms of like culture and identity happen in these classes because because they were in Spanish really. And like, you know, culture was so involved in how we communicate in, in Spanish. Like, you know, there's a shared uh, sense of uh, connection when, you know, things aren't in this like dominant uh, language or culture. Um, but I remember there was only one Spanish bilingual class per grade. So I had the same classmates from kinder through fifth grade and um There was also a a Chinese bilingual class and it was the same system, like one class per, per grade. So students who were in these programs, like we had the same classmates, kinder through fifth grade. And that was great. (laughs) And that was great. Uh, But I remember classmates in the English, just like the, just the English classes, they were like, Oh, uh, you're stupid. So you have to do things in, in two languages. And I'm like, how does that make sense? that makes no sense, right? Like, you know, we're being challenged to kind of do things, not just twice, but we're learning things kind of through two different um, approaches almost. And to me, that was like, so cool. And that really is what instilled in me and wanting to be an educator. And most of my teachers went through um, the Spanish bilingual or the bilingual um, teaching credential at SF State. And from then on, I was like, that's what I want to do. And I don't have my teaching credentials yet, um, but that's coming down the line. Uh, But coming back to, to education, um, I think communities that communities, folks that don't connect or, or don't kind of have English as their primary or like most used language get left out of conversations of policy of uh, research often um decision making. And that does impact their lives because you know, when we talk about housing, when we talk about um uh anything that happens in our neighborhoods, right? That, that those decisions happen at city hall. And if things are only going if if questions are only being asked in English, if the platforms are only in English, like folks completely get left out of these conversations. And I think to me, what's been really powerful about our work at Poder for the last 30 years, even though I've only been involved, like, you know, barely barely a third of that, is that I see the tangible wins um, through spaces, through affordable housing sites, through Hummingbird Farm, right? These are like real tangible community wins that I know didn't only happen in English. And it's powerful. Uh, one example is um, there is a park at, in the mission at 17th and Folsom, um, the name of this park is Inchan Cajal, and I can type it out for you. Inchan Cajal means, um, my community, my village, um, my, t- my little town, um, and this is in, uh, a Mayan, uh, language that, uh, one of our membership suggested this, this be named, you know, uh, this part of the mission has a lot of um, Yucatecan Mayan immigrants, and this has kind of been like a hub for the last, you know, 15, 20, maybe more years. Um, so this park being named that and acknowledging the kind of diaspora, the migration and the rootedness that they have here In you know, while still indigenous, still guest on the lonely land, and kind of bringing that uh, deep connection together of like indigenous diaspora um, is so 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 important. And this is actually um, it's a little it's a little funny, but I would say that the um, city challenged this name a little bit because hard to read, hard to spell. Hard to understand. It's not in Spanish. It's not in English. And they actually had a, a second vote, and that name still won, right? So, really, the significance and the power of that narrative, of that history, of that diaspora is instilled like very tangibly, legibly in that park. And I think that's what, you know, having these diverse, multi language um, spaces for decision making and for creativity like really lead to. In Chankahar Park. And that was a former lot. Now it's a park and new affordable housing.
0: Yeah, I know I've actually, I've been to that park uh, many times before. It's, it's really interesting now to see that, like the background of that um, and kind of the meaning of the name and how that's been through a lot and how the city kind of um, wanted to reject that. Um, so it's just, it's cool to kind of tie it back to earlier times of my life um, to see that. And so I think that kind of leads me into my next couple of questions, which is how can community allies help either if they come from higher incomes or are US born or even youth, how can they all help poder um, to advance the needs of their communities um, and what can other people really do?
1: Um, well, one, I wanna think the, uh I believe it's Latinx Unidos, a uh, group at your school who just made a really incredible donation to Poder. Um, so thank you all. That, that was so nice to see. Um, And I definitely shared with uh, our, uh, or my colleagues, my, my colegas, my co-workers around kind of this uh, intention that you all had, right? Or that th- this club had. So thank you all for doing that. Um, What are ways to help? There are, I think multiple angles to look at this Um, and I'll, I'll maybe kind of keep it in, in the, in the realm of like youth and youth work, since that's where most of my like work or life's work really is, is around. Um, I would say one of the spaces that has been like most transformational for young people, for volunteers, has been volunteering at our Excelsior, um, um, farm hummingbird farm. Um, this is a space where language isn't the first form of communication. Um, being there is already in like a testament to like, I want to get my hands in the dirt and really that that's the communication. Right. And I've seen elders and toddlers and, you know, not just Spanish-speaking folks kind of come together and, and break bread, plant together. Um, so that's been like one of the most um, really transformational spaces for kind of that cross-cultural um, connection. And it's it's really powerful. Um, so that's one space. There's always volunteer time or always volunteers needed to get your hands in the dirt, whether that's for weeding, mulching, planting, harvesting, Harvesting, watering, um, that's one space. And I think um uh those are kind of like long long-term um opportunities, one-time opportunities. I think that's one space. Um another another area, and it doesn't have to like connect to language exclusively.
0: No, it can be about um, pretty much any way to help.
1: Yeah. I think really learning about um, our work and learning about our kind of principles and values and like what what our mission really is around environmental justice and the way that, you know, we defined it earlier is just kind of this intersection of like, what does it mean to have, to live in a thriving, it, what does it mean to live in a healthy community in which you're able to thrive? And I think often, um we can read that in writing and it could be nice, right? But when we're in spaces, in academia, in leadership spaces, sometimes those challenges aren't represented, right? So there's this kind of sense of like, if you're noticing something like this is when, you know, you speak up for communities who may not be in the room because they weren't invited, right? Um, And I think really that's, that's also the transformational work. It's just kind of like, whose name do you need to drop in order to have them be in the space and often folks with like more privilege um whether that's through race income all all of the intersections that's like really leveraging that privilege is like a first and very important step so you know how are you levering your privilege to make sure that the people represented, the people being talked about are actually represented and actually being the decision makers. So that's, that's one piece. And that has a lot to do with the way in which organizing and communities decisions happen. Um, often, you know, we'll say like, you know, we're not invited to the table. So we make our own tables. And if folks at this like main table, <laughs> like getting all, I don't know I'm losing it I haven't had my my coffee yet um you don't have to you don't have to include that um but that's that I, I would say that that's like one really important like kind of doing the work um in the spaces that you're already in right whether it's in classes whether it's in clubs or leadership spaces or even your work it's just like what do you notice about who's being talked about or who how are decisions made being made about spaces or people and are the first and worst people impacted there or not. So how does that take into account, right? And if you have that privilege to kind of be in that decision-making space, what is your role in challenging those notions? Um, So that's, you know, I would say that's kind of like the the personal commitment to justice, um, environmental justice as well. That isn't just about the environment, but it's about the people in the environment as well.
0: Yeah, definitely. And kind of just, um, Some, in summary, it's just the community is really important um, to helping others. People need to be looking out for each other. Um, and that's kind of the most important thing is, um, kind of that whole idea and just kind of closing up, uh, is there anything, uh, maybe that would surprise someone from the outside about the work you do with Poder or about the communities you serve, um, just something maybe not everyone would know.
1: I think as an educator, what is central to me in, you know, I've been calling it my work and I don't necessarily mean that as like my paid work. I mean, that as kind of like my life's, my life's work, right? Like my purpose. Um, But something that is so central to me and that has been instilled with me from like early years and I like really live it and practice it at poder is this principle or this value of like, each one teach one. Everyone has something to learn, and everyone has something to to teach. And if you really guide yourself with that principle or that model, um, you're open to learning so much more and to navigating uh, in in ways that bring forth more justice and more more equity. So, I would say, kind of really keeping that center is central is important
0: yeah, and is there anything you just like would uh, would like to add kind of to close it?
1: I would say something that I, I remember a good friend uh, shared. She is in a language justice collective, and they do interpretation and a lot of translations of kind of important like cultural documents, um, not only academic, not only political but just like cultural. Cultural pieces will translate into um, into kind of the equivalent of what the examples would be in Spanish, and it's been able they, they've been really able to popularize a lot of uh, cool stuff in for language speaking communities for Spanish speaking communities. Um, remember, she says the the revolution is not going to be in. Is not going to be monolingual or like the revolution is not going to be in English. And really, I love that. I laugh about it. Cause I'm like, that's kind of how my mind works. Right. It's kind of how our community works. Um, so keeping that like really at the forefront too, the, the revolution is not going to be monolingual. It can't be.
0: Yeah. And that's definitely something I'm going to keep in my mind as I go forward as well. Um, but thank you so much for doing this interview. Um, it was really helpful. And I know I learned a lot. And this concludes this podcast. I hope everyone had a great time listening, and I hope everyone learned a lot. I know I did, and for that reason, I'd like to give a special shout-out to Jackie for doing this interview. It was such a pleasure talking to her, and I hope I talk to her again soon. Thank you, everybody. Have a good day.